1988 Summer Olympics were frustrating for me. Uh, not only did Roy Jones Jr., who was from my hometown, get robbed of the gold medal, uh, but USA men's basketball team only managed to snag a bronze medal. That was frustrating for me because while watching Team USA get defeated by the Soviet Union in the semifinals, and, and kids ask your parents who the Soviet Union is, uh, I, I knew that USA could put together a basketball team that would destroy every other country's team without even breaking a sweat. Well, not long after the 88 Summer Games concluded, the IOC announced that professionals would be allowed to compete in the next Olympic Games for the first time in modern Olympic history. My friends and I were gleeful as we imagined and discussed the vengeance the coming 92 USA men's basketball team would unleash on the teams from other countries. And over the next four years, our anticipation grew as we longed to watch what would eventually be called the dream team destroy their basketball foes. And while I admit that my example doesn't do justice to the glorious tone of our text this morning, I hope that it sets the stage at least a little for how Psalm 110 is one king eagerly looking forward to the coming of an even greater king. So if you haven't already done so, please turn to Psalm 110, which can be found on page 509 of the Bibles provided in the pews. Psalm 110. And please follow along as I read. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your, 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 your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 10, 110 under three points. King, priest, and warrior, as our brother Jed uh, prayed earlier. Uh, simple to remember, king, priest, and warrior. But before we do that, before we get into the three points, I want us to spend a little time looking at the psalm's context, which is wrapped up in its heading, a psalm of David. When, when reading the psalms, it can be tempting to gloss over or even skip the headings. For example, if you, if you flip a few pages back and look at Psalm 102, um, Psalm 102, before verse 1 of that psalm even gets going, you'll read a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. So that's the heading before we even get to verse 1. And sadly, I suspect that when reading Psalm 102, many of us will skip straight to verse 1 and not spend time contemplating the heading. And I say sadly because the heading is divinely inspired for one thing. And it reveals important information about the psalm to the reader. So Psalm 102's heading tells us that not only is it a prayer of lament, but it's also to be applied beyond the poet. A prayer of one afflicted, not my prayer of affliction. The reader is being asked to enter into the psalm, not as an observer, but as a participant. And so back in Psalm 110, we have the heading, a psalm of David. Now, that heading may seem obvious and not really worthy of contemplation. 
It's a much simpler, a more straightforward heading than Psalm 102's heading, right? I mean, we, we all know who David is. He killed Goliath. He ruled over Israel for a really long time as a king. He collected the materials for the temple. God promised that David's descendants would reign over God's people, right? We know who David is. The heading is self-explanatory. And in a certain sense, for many of us, that's true. But a deeper understanding of this heading is important to our understanding and application of Psalm 110. We don't want to just gloss over it. In fact, Jesus himself leaned on this heading when he quoted Psalm 110 verse 1 to the Pharisees in Luke 20 verses 41 through 44. It's a well-known passage, but I want you to not only listen, but to see the words of Jesus as I read. So keeping a finger in Psalm 110, please turn over to Luke chapter 20 verses 41 through 44, which is page 880 in the Pew Bibles. So Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44, and we'll be coming back to Psalm 110 in a, just a little bit. All right, so listen as I read and follow along. But he, Jesus, but he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So, so how is he his son? As we begin, I want to see how important the authorship of this psalm is because it was important to Jesus. In fact, it's so important that Derek Kidner wrote, nowhere in the Psalter does so much hang on the familiar title, a psalm of David, as it does here. So why is it so important? Well, for starters, claiming that someone other than David wrote Psalm 110 contradicts Jesus. If you believe that David didn't write this psalm, you're disagreeing with Jesus. And disagreeing with Jesus is a side of history that you don't want to be on, which we'll get to in this psalm. And for our purposes this morning, one of the reasons that Jesus points to the authorship of Psalm 110 is because it's important that readers and listeners, and that includes us, engage the poem with the understanding that King David is the writer and speaker. Look down at Luke 20, 41 through 44, and count the number of times Jesus points out that David is the speaker of Psalm 110. Three times. Remember Psalm 102 that I referenced earlier has a heading that invites the reader into the seat of the writer. It puts the pen in your hand, so to speak. Not Psalm 110. King David wrote it, and King David speaks it. The king wrote it. The king of Israel wrote it. The king whom all other kings in Israel's history, the, the southern kingdom's history, descended from. King David was the standard for all the other kings of Israel. <clears throat> Pointing out just one instance of many, 2 Chronicles 29 verse 2 describes King Hezekiah as the one who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. Hezekiah is compared to King David. So considering who King David is, the heading... A psalm of David should cause us to raise our eyebrows at the very first verse. Because, and this is our first point, King, because King David, the standard, the, the patriarch of the dynasty, writes about a king who is greater than he is, whom he calls Lord. Kings of dynastic empires don't usually refer to anyone else as Lord. Something important is going on with Psalm 110. And that something is, as one theologian points out, that God revealed this prophetic psalm to David to prepare for the coming Messiah. So our three points give us important information about that Messiah, which is King David's king. 
So look at verses 1 through 2 again. In Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, ruled in the midst of your enemies. The Messiah is a king. And the Messiah is a king through the decree of Yahweh, of God the Father. The the Lord that's in all capitals is a translation of Yahweh. The other Lord is a translation of Adonai, which means my master, and refers to the Lord-vassal relationship between his people. David is acknowledging that he is subject to both all capitals Lord and Adonai Lord. Beginning with verse 1, we see the great King David submitting himself to the sovereign control of God. And this is more than just a recognition that, that God is in control. With this psalm, David is acknowledging that the Davidic dynasty, his kingship, is because God willed it into being. God put David on the throne and established David's family. And David doesn't allow himself to buy the lie that he accomplished it. David didn't look around at his kingdom and tell himself that his dominance was because of what he did. David hits loud notes of praise as he begins this poem. And this is instructive for us. Are we in the habit of giving God the glory for our lives? Do we start off praising God or looking to God when we speak? When reflecting on this past year, do you praise God for the promotion you got at work? Do you acknowledge that it was his sovereign hand that gave you that promotion? When rejoicing at the goals you reached over the last year, do you publicly give praise and thanks to God? Or do you allow others to think that you deserve the credit? When reflecting on how sin is being put to death in your life, who gets the credit? Following David's example is a great way to begin conversations with others about the gospel when discussing discussing accomplishments over the past year. Through the the power of the Holy Spirit, let's, let's acknowledge the sovereign lordship of our creator and our savior and king. Furthermore, I believe when we read, the Lord says to my Lord, we need to ask, who is the Lord? All capitals, Lord. Obviously, in the setting we find ourselves in this morning, it's safe to assume that as a group, we realize that David is talking about God. However, I don't don't know if that's enough of an answer, and here's what I mean. Several years ago, when I was a brand new Christian, I complained to my pastor that I wasn't really getting anything out of my Bible reading. After listening to my complaints, really my excuses for why I didn't read the Bible regularly. He told me that when we read the Bible, our main objective should be to find out who God is, what God is revealing about himself. That's the humble approach we need to have when we read our Bible. And Psalm 110 is not disconnected from the Bible. In fact, it's a brief summation of much of the story of the Bible. And for the record, when I say story of the Bible, I mean true story of the Bible. And so we need to ask, who is the Lord? Who is God and what is he revealing about himself? So first, notice what God, what the Lord says to David's Lord. Sit at my right hand. We've already talked about David's posture of submission in this poem. And here in verse 1, we're introduced to a sovereign ruler who tells King David's Lord to sit at his right hand, referencing the sovereign control that's revealed about God throughout the entire Bible. This Lord... God has complete sovereign power over all creation. He made everything after all. And if our posture when reading this psalm or the Bible in general isn't one of humble submission, one of humble recognition of who God is, then we do not understand and we do not understand our place in God's story. And one of the most important facts revealed by God in his story is that that as the sovereign creator of all, and that includes all of us, he sets the terms. God's rule isn't a democracy. None of us get a vote. 
you and I don't get to decide how we can approach God's throne. Remember what happened to Cain. Cain failed to submit to God and his sacrifice was rejected. In King David's own life, he watched God execute Uzzah because Uzzah failed to obey God's rule concerning the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant. And if you recoil at the execution of Uzzah, then frankly, you're revealing that you have yet to fully submit to God's sovereignty. And we're all guilty of that. This side of eternity, we all demonstrate from time to time that we believe that we can do a better job at ruling than God. Every time we sin, we reveal that we believe that. So the Lord speaks to David's Lord and tells him to sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And sitting at the right hand of God confers authority and power reserved only for God. David's Lord is no normal king. His authority is total. The phrase, until I make your enemies your footstool, is an ancient metaphor for absolute control. Throughout King David's life, he dealt with enemies and dissidents, even his own sons. He failed to exercise absolute control over his own emotions and actions. And as great as King David was, his enemies were never made his footstool in this sense. So David isn't looking ahead to a king similar to him. He's looking ahead to a king who transcends him, a king who exercises absolute control over every king, over everything, a king that has to be divine. And we find this king in the New Testament, Acts 5.30. After being dragged before the earthly authorities, Peter and the other apostles confess, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And I have one more, and I want us to turn there. So 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20, which can be found on page 961 of the Bibles provided. And as you turn, keep your place in Psalm 110. So please follow along as I read, beginning with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. All right, that raises some questions, I think. Have David's Lord's enemies not yet been defeated? Have Jesus' enemies not been put under his control yet? And what does that mean for us? Well, let's keep reading, picking back up in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who has put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So here in verses 20 through 28, we not only have an exegesis of Psalm 110, we also have a summation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And... We should preach the Old Testament and study the Old Testament the way the New Testament writers preach the Old Testament. 
And under divine inspiration, the Apostle Paul takes the last part of Psalm 110, verse 1, and connects it to the rebellion of Adam, runs it through the incarnation, focusing on the resurrection, and then encourages us by placing our hope in God's promise to David's Lord that he will make his enemies his footstool. So let's unpack that. First off, who are the enemies of God that Psalm 110 references? Well, I submit that God's enemies are directly connected to Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 through 22, for as by a man came death, skipping to verse 22, for as in Adam all die. Sin and death are the enemies of David's Lord. And we know how sin and death, Jesus' enemies, entered the world because the story the Bible tells us. After God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the Garden of Eden to serve and worship him as his vice regents, Adam and Eve decided that they were worthy of even more honor. Heeding the temptation of serpent Satan, our first parents rebelled against God because they wanted to be like God. And so God pronounced the just sentence of death on Adam and his descendants who would be born in rebellion from that time on, which includes us. Adam and Eve were then banished from the Garden of Eden, which was a type of tabernacle where God met with his people. That's tragic. But here's the beautiful part of the first few chapters of Genesis. God, the sovereign ruler of all, the all capitals Lord in Psalm 110, utterly defeated the rebellion. It was over. He made his enemies his footstool. God's enemies were condemned to perish, to die. Except God didn't leave it there. Astonishingly, God desires to have a relationship with his people, even though we are rotten rebels who, like our first parents, believed that we can rule over our life better than our creator can. And so in Genesis 3.15, God promised to send a seed to crush the head of serpent Satan and undo the curse of sin and death and thus rescue his people. God promised to make his enemies his subjects who enjoy his blessings and not his curse. We don't deserve that. We deserve the being made a footstool part. We are rebels, sinners who have sinned against our holy creator. Because of that, we can't approach God's throne without being consumed. So because of our inability, God sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Psalm 110 verse 2. Rescuing God's people and restoring their right relationship with God cannot be accomplished by a normal king. David understood this. Only God can save his people. Only God can accomplish what the first Adam failed to do. Only a divine king can rule God's people the way God intends. And this is why Paul points us to the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. The resurrection is all the evidence we need that Jesus is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15 and David's Lord in Psalm 110. Jesus is the Messiah who has been sent forth from Zion. Look again at the words of verse 2 in Psalm 110. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This power, this rule is seen going out from Zion, Jerusalem, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Jesus commands his followers, the church, people who who have been given new life by the Spirit, to spread his kingdom by preaching his gospel and making followers of Jesus. And that touches on the question of of why does Paul say that Jesus' enemies have yet to be completely subdued? And the short answer is that Jesus isn't finished making a new nation from all tribes and tongues. And that's a blessing. And Lord willing, we'll interact with that a little more in our final point. But before we do, we need to keep moving through our text. Psalm 110 verse 3 is one of the hardest verses in the Bible to translate. And different translations emphasize different things. One thing is clear, though. 
Upon the arrival of David's Lord, a new people will begin gathering around this king and will follow him as he works to overcome the enemies of sin and death. And I submit, as I mentioned earlier, that that's the church spreading Jesus' gospel to the ends of the world and making a new people by the power of the Spirit. Yet, as we know from the story of the Bible, our sin precludes us from being able to be in fellowship with God. So how does this divine king gather people who are sinful around him? And this brings us to our second point. Please follow along as I read Psalm 110, verse 4 again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A king as a priest? I think that if we were to poll Christians... Many would say that the offices of priest and king in the Old Testament are distinct and separate. And under certain headings, I think that's correct. The Aaronic priesthood, Aaron, was limited to Levites. Even King David confesses to this in 1 Chronicles 15.2. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And yet... If you pay attention when reading the Old Testament, which is my plug to read the whole thing and not just small parts, the Old Testament gives hints that something better, something more complete is happening. For example, David was dressed as a priest in 2 Samuel 6, 14 and was in charge of the sacrifices in verses 16 through 17. And then he gave a priestly blessing to the people. You find the same thing with King Solomon. You can look up 1 Kings 8 later today. And we have another hint of it. A sharper, more vivid picture of the priestly king, Melchizedek. And we'll get to that mysterious figure named Melchizedek in a minute. But I think we need to answer a question first. Why does David's Lord need to be a priest too? Well, as we concluded our first point, I said, as as we know from the story of the Bible, our sin precludes us from our being able to be in fellowship with God, with the all-capital Lord at the beginning of Psalm 110. We need a priest to intercede on our behalf. Since God is perfectly just, sin has to be punished. And since we're all sinners, that's a problem. God can't just lift the curse of death. He placed the curse of death on sinners justly and rightly. And simply removing it would mean that God's not just. And that would be an even bigger problem than our sin. And this is where the priestly system comes in. Humans need someone to advocate for them before God because we can't approach his throne on our own. And more than an advocate, we need our sins dealt with. So in the Old Testament, God instituted a series of sacrifices that were administered by the priests. Yet it became obvious from the get-go that the sacrificial system didn't actually cleanse the people from their sins. As Moses explained to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 10.16, They need to circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Later in Deuteronomy 36, Moses reassures God's people, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. That you may live. The opposite of the curse of death. So in the the first part of God's story, the first few books... We find God promising to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin and death. We have the sacrificial system making it clear that sin has to be atoned for. Sin has to be punished. And we have the command to circumcise our hearts. And then Moses promises that God will circumcise the hearts of his people. 
But by the time we get to King David and his writing of Psalm 110, we have had a steady parade of failure. Moses fails and isn't allowed into the promised land. After entering the promised land, it doesn't take long for the Israelites to demonstrate that they are truly Adam and Eve's descendants. The book of Judges ends with a disturbing statement. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We need a priestly king. King Saul, of course, fails and loses his throne. And King David, even though he is a man after God's own heart, still fails the people. His sin brings death and chaos to the nation. And David was aware of his rebellion and was troubled by it. In Psalm 38, he confesses, My iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. Psalm 51, speaking to God, Against you and you only have I sinned. King David didn't suffer from any delusions about his sinfulness. What's more, when you read through David's psalms, it's also very clear that he was aware that God punishes the wicked. I think oftentimes we miss that when we're reading the psalms about how one of its main thematic emphasis is how God punishes the wicked. Yet in Psalm 32, he writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He then adds, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Even though the sacrifices were a constant reminder that he was still a sinner, and those own actions were a constant reminder that he was still a sinner, David wrote Psalm 32 in full confidence that God had forgiven his sins. And he could do so because in Psalm 110, David confesses that his Lord is not only a king, but is a priest too. A priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the the sacrificial system was also a constant reminder that God's kingly priest was going to deal with David's sin. And there are three references in the Bible to the mysterious figure named Melchizedek. Here in Psalm 110, back in Genesis 14, and then Hebrews chapter 5 through 7. Genesis 14, Abraham, who is still called Abram at this point, uh, has to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been kidnapped during a war between Canaanite city kingdoms. Because God was fighting for him, Abram defeated the kings involved in Lot's kidnapping. In doing so, Abraham, Abram recovered the spoils of war taken by those kings. And verse 18 tells us that after Abram returned from battle, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine... He was a priest of God Most High and blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram then gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. So who is this Melchizedek? Well, Melchizedek was a king of Salem and a priest of God Most High, as the verse says. And that's about all the information in terms of facts that Moses provides in Genesis 14. However, there are some important um, things uh, for our text and for the gospel that derive from those facts. So one, we know Salem, Melchizedek, king of Salem. We know Salem by its more popular name of Jerusalem. In his book, Kingdom of Priests, after pointing out how David points to Jesus as the priestly king, Eugene Merrill explains that this is why David chose Jerusalem to house the ark and the tabernacle and to be his capital. Jerusalem is the focal point for the religious and political activity of David's kingdom. Psalm 76.2, his abode, God's dwelling place, has been established in Salem, his dwelling in Zion. 
Centered in Salem, Jerusalem, King David's priestly rule over the Israelites pointed to the eschatological Zion, the eschatological city of Jerusalem. With that in mind, on one level, the promise of Psalm 110 verse 4 applies to David. So recorded in 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David that he will establish a son of David on the throne forever. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. David's dynasty is as certain as God's promises are certain. And so on another more important level, we know that this passage is referring to David's greater son, the Messiah. Like how the Davidic city of Jerusalem points to and culminates in the final city of God, the Davidic line is a line of priestly kings that point to and culminate in the Messiah. David's Lord of Psalm 110. What's more, because this line of priestly kings is based on the line of Melchizedek, it stands outside the Levitical priesthood and sacrificial system. David's Lord transcends the Mosaic Covenant. He's a transcendent king and a transcendent priest. David knew that his salvation was in God's faithfulness and his promises. David didn't place his hope in the Levitical priesthood. There's not a plan A and then a plan B in God's story. The Levitical priests always pointed to David's Lord. David himself was aware that the sacrificial system wasn't enough. That the Levitical priesthood pointed to something greater. So keeping your place in Psalm 110, please turn to Hebrews chapter 7, page 1004 in the Pew Bibles. In Hebrews chapter 7, after summarizing Abram's meeting with Melchizedek, the writer points out in verse 3, verse 3 of chapter 7 of Hebrews, that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, now this is interesting, among a series of interesting things about Melchizedek. The, The writer of Hebrews isn't claiming like some believe, that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. The resembling the Son of God is a way of saying that Melchizedek points to or prefigures Jesus, not that he is Jesus. What's going on here is that the writer of Hebrews is claiming that there is a thematic reason why Melchizedek's lineage and death aren't recorded. For one, it's a literary way of reflecting the eternality of God's true kingly priest. David's Lord of Psalm 110. For another thing, it highlights that genealogy is unimportant to the writer of Genesis in establishing Melchizedek's credentials to be a priest of God Most High. Genealogy was very important for the credentials of the priest under the Mosaic Covenant. And and we know Jesus' lineage. But being in the line of Melchizedek means that his lineage is not what qualifies him to be God's final and true priest. What does? Well, continuing in Hebrews 7, we read about how, like Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, Jesus is greater than the Levitical priesthood because of his resurrection. Death has no hold over him. So please follow along as I continue reading Hebrews chapter 7, picking back up in verse 4. So Hebrews 7, verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, although these are also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. 
It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, ties are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives ties, paid ties through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The inferior is blessed by the superior. The writer of Hebrews isn't finished, though. Uh, Picking back up in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Why would David have written Psalm 110 if the Levitical priesthood and the Old Testament sacrificial system were enough? In verse 12, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. In short, the writer of Hebrews, among other concerns, he was concerned that his readers were in danger of returning to the Mosaic cult, re-embracing the law. But who has bewitched you, foolish Galatians? And turning their backs on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to combat that, the writer of Hebrews exegetes Psalm 110. A large part of his exegesis is arguing that the Melchizedek priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And Hebrews 7 points out that Jesus comes from a tribe that Moses never connected to the priesthood. Instead, Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek based on the power of an indestructible life, his resurrection. Thomas Schreiner writes, All Levitical priests die, but Jesus is a priest who has triumphed over death forever. Surely such a priesthood is superior to the one where death leads to an endless succession of priests. And so Hebrews 7.22 declares, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And here's the really great part. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him, for them. And that's the glorious point, application, if you will, for us this morning. David's Lord is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, rest today in full confidence that your king and priest has accomplished the full and final atonement for all your sins. If you're discouraged this morning because you fell into into sin this past week, and we all fell into sin this past week, let's be honest. Cling to Jesus, your priest who is sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you, reminding God the Father that he paid the penalty for your sins. For those who are repenting of their sins and placing their faith in Jesus, you have an intercessor who reminds the Father that he paid the full price for your sins. You're free. You've been saved to the utmost. 
which is good news considering our third and final point, warrior. Follow along as I read verses 5 through 7 in Psalm 110. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Earlier, we mentioned that that David's Lord's enemies had yet to be fully subdued and left it at that. And in those verses that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul plainly states that the last enemy left for Jesus to destroy is death. What does that mean, though, in relation to Psalm 110? so, So one of the things that's interesting about Psalm 110 is that the enthronement of David's Lord isn't the final act. It's how it begins. Derek Kidner writes, he calls Jesus' enthronement the prelude to the final conquest. Another interesting thing is that the all capitals Lord and David's Lord of the first four verses act as one. The Lord is at your right hand. The power of God acting as one. And this final conquest takes, as this final conquest takes place, Yahweh and the Messiah are working as one to shatter the kings. This reminds me of another psalm. Psalm 102, after asking, why do the nations rage in the people's plot in vain, exposing the rebellion of humanity? The psalmist writes in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Very few verses provide such a vivid description as Psalm 2.4. It's reminiscent of how Moses uses comic language to describe how humanity's shining achievement, the Tower of Babel, was actually so pathetic that God had to leave heaven and come down to even get a look at it. And these poetic images, while pointed and effective, do not fully describe the difference between the Creator and His creation. But human language is what the Holy Spirit inspired the human authors to write in. And so like in Psalm 2 in Genesis, in Psalm 110, David says that the Lord will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. Not defeat, shatter. Shatter carries with it the image of total and unopposed annihilation. The kings of this earth, those in rebellion, don't stand a chance against God. If you are in rebellion against God, you do not stand a chance. Look again at verse 6. He will fill the nations with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. This is universal. There's no bunker, no safe space, no neutral site that can be retreated to that will spare people the judgment of the Lord. There is coming a day when Jesus will return and execute God's righteous and just judgment over the whole earth. Psalm 110 verses 5 through 7 is a prophetic vision of what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord, the final battle after Jesus returns. And the battle lines are clearly drawn. The Lord, David's Lord, versus the kings of this world who are under the dominion of serpent Satan. And we read about this coming climatic final battle in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, which can be found on page 1040 of the Pew Bibles. I told you that Psalm 110 is a summation of the entire Bible. So please turn to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. So Psalm, Revelation 19, verses, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In apocalyptic literature, white is the color of victory. At the beginning of the battle, the white horse in verse 11 signals that the outcome is already decided. Victory is assured because God is sovereign over all. And this is the answer to the question we asked in our first point. Why does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power? So those who are still living in rebellion against their creator are in danger every second of their life of finding themselves under the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty described in Revelation 19. Because of Jesus' resurrection, sin and death's defeat is assured. It's not a question of if, but a question of when. And people use a variety of metaphors to describe this already not yet aspect of Jesus' victory over sin and death. And when you push on any metaphor hard enough, it will fall apart. And in most of the metaphors, victory is likely but not assured. Jesus' victory is assured. This is one of the reasons why I chose the illustration of the 1992 Dream Team to open this sermon. When the Dream Team stepped on the court in their first game against Angola, their victory was beyond likely. It was as close to assured as something can get in this life. Victory was so certain that the members of the team didn't even bother to study game tape. In fact, the team didn't act like a normal team gearing up for competition. They spent their time off the court being tourists. And unlike the other athletes at the Olympic Games, they didn't have a curfew because the best nightclubs where they were staying didn't open until after midnight. Everyone was so confident that Team USA would win, including Angola's players, that, they, that the question everyone was wanting to know wasn't, will Team USA win, but how badly will they beat Angola? The answer, as we know, is 68 points. Team USA beat Angola by 68 points. And look, the, the fact that Revelation 19 hasn't happened yet, that Psalm 110 verses 5 through 7 has yet to find its complete fulfillment, should cause us to give thanks, not to question the outcome. For those who are already repenting of their sin and placing their faith in Jesus, we can battle our sin in the full confidence that Jesus has already won the war. We shouldn't live in defeat because our victory over sin is assured. Angola managed to score 48 points against Team USA. But whenever Angola scored, Team USA wasn't congratulating themselves. They weren't happy to let the opposition score. But they also didn't allow their lapses in defense to cause them to act defeated. They never lost the full confidence that the game was already won and they pressed on. And that's a paltry picture of the Christian life. I get that. But when we sin, we don't look down in defeat. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look, the, the all capital letters Lord at the beginning of Psalm 110 is our Lord. We are His because we belong to Jesus. So, so Christian, live in a manner that reflects the victory that Jesus has already won for you. Joyfully avail yourselves of the means of grace, reading your Bible, prayer, placing yourself under the right preaching of God's word, etc. 
And confidently combat the sin that still remains in your life in the full assurance that victory will be yours because of what your Savior has accomplished. Of course, there's another side to this. If victory is assured for those who are submitting to Jesus through repentance and faith, that means that defeat and destruction is assured for others. And this raises the question, which side are you on? And make no mistake, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Those who are submitting to God through repentance of sin and faith in Jesus, and those who are rebelling against God and insisting that they can rule over their own life. And don't allow the closing verse of Psalm 110 to lull you into complacency. Because if you really know what's going on with verse 7, you'll realize that it's not a happy ending for God's enemies. Verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Only the victors get to refresh themselves. Verse 7 is a poetic way of describing how the battle will end. With David's Lord victorious and ready to invite his people into the new heavens and the new earth to enjoy God's blessing for all eternity. The opposite of that, of course, is that the enemies of David's Lord are sentenced to their eternal punishment that their sins against the eternal God deserve. And if you're still rebelling against God and insisting on ruling your own life, there's good news for you. David's Lord, the Messiah, is not only a priest who intercedes, but is a priest who accomplished what the sacrificial system couldn't. Jesus, by his death on the cross, bore God's eternal wrath, owed the sin of those who repent and believe on Jesus. Jesus was the final Paschal Lamb, John 1, John 1 Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was able to die the substitutionary death on the cross for those whom the Father has given him because he was without sin, the spotless Lamb of God. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So if you repent of your sin and place your faith in the life of death and resurrection of Jesus, you are given new life through Jesus and adopted into God's family. And if you're here this morning and you're still rebelling against God, I urge you to repent and believe. Doing so means that on that final day, you will rejoice to see your Savior lift up his head in victory. Let's pray.